production. Hello, it's Sarah. I wanted to let you know about my three new meditations I have made especially for you. If you follow the podcast, you'll know that meditation has been a big part of my life for a long time, so a lot of care has been taken in making these meditations extremely powerful. I've created a 20-minute manifestation meditation to allow you to bring your dreams into reality. Then I've created two 10-minute meditations, one for the morning to help you start your day vitalized and with a clear mind, then an evening meditation to help you have a calm and restful sleep. You can find these three meditations on my website at the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com. Liesl Jones is regarded as one of the world's greatest ever female swimmers, winning seven world championship titles, nine Olympic medals, 10 Commonwealth Games gold medals, 14 individual world records and 23 national titles. Beyond the glory of the pool, Liesl has not been immune to the pain of life including personal battles with depression, media controversy, criticism about her weight and bullying. This conversation traverses many realms, including the importance of exercise for a healthy mind and what it takes to conquer your dreams. I thought I was going to like myself more. I thought other people would like me more if I won a gold medal, when none of that's true. The destination never feels like what you think it's going to feel like. It's never as fulfilling. It's not like all of a sudden you get to the goalpost and they fill up your cup and they go, there you go, you're fulfilled. Like, there you go, you feel amazing and your self-worth is amazing and and you're just going to be adored everywhere you go. It's nothing like that. It's not what it's about. I'm Sarah Grimberg. And this is a life of greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Liesl Jones is the author of the memoir Body Lengths, a raw account of her time in the pool. In its essence, this conversation is about discipline, courage and discomfort and how to face up to life's ever-changing landscape. My hope is that this conversation reminds you that what we perceive to be perfect may not always be and that we are all here living a human experience in its many shades. Liesl Jones, you're a nine-time Olympic medalist, three-time gold Olympic medalist. Thank you for joining me today. I wanted to start at the beginning and talk a bit about your upbringing because you had a really interesting upbringing. I feel like my upbringing was pretty amazing. I feel really thankful for the opportunities that I had growing up. I grew up on a big property, so 300 acres. Uh, We didn't own the the property, but we boarded onto another block of land that was completely empty. And it was just so great growing up with horses and dogs and um, just a really free range life, which I think made it so special and I guess really low key. And I think that's probably the best thing was it was so such an easy life and an easy upbringing. Um, So I think in that way, it kind of made me who I am today because I just love that kind of free spirited attitude. I could dream as big as I wanted to. Nothing was limiting for me and I could just enjoy 
um, life as it was. And so I feel incredibly lucky to have that opportunity. Um, schooling was great for me. I loved that. I loved learning. So yeah, I feel like I'm one of those very rare people that gets the, the childhood and the lifestyle and the upbringing that was so fortunate and limitless and just I could do anything I wanted to. And you spent a bit of time, I think it was when you were very young, on the road. Your your parents travelled for a bit. Yeah, absolutely. So my parents travelled around Australia in a bus. Amazing. It was like a, I don't know, how, um, how amazing is that? And my half-brothers did School of the Air. So this is through the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Can you explain what that is, that School yeah, of the Air? So, yeah, so School of the Air is basically learning the the basic school curriculum via radio. That's kind of how it works, which is someone delivers the class via a radio station as we would know it today and then learning that way. So it was a very one-way conversation. It wasn't very interactive, but, um, you know, they're incredibly smart human beings and it's still it's still around today, School of the Air, and it's still hugely popular in, in remote areas. So it's a great way of learning, but very um, off-grid, very different, very free range, I would say. I know that you were young, but how was that time traveling in a bus with with your parents? I mean, because that is, like we said, such a wonderful thing to be able to do. How was that for you? For a child, I don't think you really know any different. You sort yeah. of think that's normal. I think your upbringing, you just think that's normal and anyone else, if they have a different experience, they think, oh, that's so weird. So I think to have that kind of experience, to be just so relaxed uh, in my childhood was so, yeah, I was just so lucky in that way to be able to experience different areas. And I'm so proud to say that I'm born in Catherine in the Northern Territory. It's just such a such a great uh, area and yeah. it's so I think really unexplored in Australia mm. we we always stick to the east coast or we do all the tourist areas but the northern territory is just rich in so much history and I'm so incredibly proud to be born in an area like that and so remote. Did you stay in Catherine for long? No, unfortunately. I moved when I was about a year old and moved to Sydney and then learnt to swim in Sydney while I was there. So I, I don't have a huge amount of memories, probably no memories at all really, but just to go back there and to be able to experience it as an adult I think is yeah, I just think it's such a great mm. place. You know, Indigenous Australian history goes back almost 50,000 years. So to have that upbringing and to be in such a special area, I think, yeah, I'm just so, so lucky to have that. Absolutely. And your parents separated when you were young. How did that affect you? Hugely. And it does even today in terms of like finances. And um, when we separated, the house was repossessed that we lived in and grew, and I grew up in my family home. So I think that does affect you in certain ways, especially as an adult. And yeah, it kind of has an effect on you when it's disruptive. And especially at that age, when you're coming into a teenager and you're learning about different things. And like I said, my schooling was pretty relatively uh, non, you know, there was no issues. I loved school. And so, yeah, to be disrupted at that point, I think was quite difficult. But um, I mean, those things happen. I, I'm definitely not rare at this no. point. I think 50%, 50%. Yeah, relationships end. So yeah, it's, um, it's just something that you learn to go through. But having a house repossessed and having to move is, is probably, um, probably the more traumatic part of that. Mm. It's interesting that you say that because I think people think, oh, you know, when 
parents separate. It's so common, no big deal. And I was interviewing a lady the other day and she spoke about the trauma that she felt when her parents separated and she's in her 50s. And it it affected her so badly and it wasn't because the separation was so bad. It's this idea that when you're young, that your parents, you idolise them and it, it is so unbelievably full on when when that happens. And I think that we mustn't shy away from the fact that that kind of thing really does affect people. And then even adults, even when you're an adult and your parents separate, that can be so, so hard. Mm, Yeah. And it's because it's what you've always known as a child and having both uh, parents around and having your mom and dad or whatever the house situation is like, having those people in your life all the time and then to not have them there is so disruptive. And yes. so I think you don't really process that so much at the time or you don't really think about it or you go, oh, that's just what we're doing next and we look forward to the next thing or the next challenge and we don't necessarily process that. So, yeah, I think looking back now, I, I think that had a huge impact on on what I was doing throughout my life. It's such a disruptive age, 12, there's so many, you've got puberty coming Mm. up, you've got lots of different things happening. You're about to go from primary school to high school. There's so many different things happening. And yeah, as much as I don't hold a grudge for that situation, that's the best decision for them. Um, It just happened to be what happened in my childhood. But like I said, I'm not alone in that situation. So many people had worst experiences. And I'm pretty lucky in that way that I I think I was pretty sheltered from a lot of it. And um, swimming was very much a big part of my life, even then at the age of 12. So to have something outside that a community that I felt a part of, I think was really helpful. So you went to live with your mother. Did your brothers live with your dad or did they come with you? No. No, so uh, they have a different father to me. So um, I'm an only child from my mum and my dad. And so they were quite a bit older. So they were probably about 10 years older than me. So they were living in Sydney at that point. So basically just my mum and myself. And you became very, very close. You were always close, but you guys were very close and you started to swim. I always love to know when people have achieved so much in a career that is a sport, how they got into it. Yeah, uh, look, I loved swimming and I always did. I was such a water baby just from from really young. As even about six months old, I was in a pool. I was always in water. I was always surrounded by water mm. and especially in a country like Australia yes, where we it, all it is are an surrounded island. by water. <laughs> you have to swim when you're young. You kind of don't For even get sure. a choice. My kids, no. as part of their school, which is part of every school here in Australia, if you're not Australian and listening to this, it's a really, I think it's such a great thing that they have to do every year. I think it's two weeks worth of hardcore, intense swimming every single day at their school. And it's it's something the government provides and it's such a great thing. Well, drowning is such a huge issue around the world and it's not just Australia. The US have very high drowning rates. So it's really important to know, especially in a country that's surrounded by water, that we have access to water. All our holidays are at the beach or um, by rivers or by streams or by creeks, uh, lakes, all sorts of things that we need to know how to learn how to swim. So from a really young age, it's kind of a non-negotiable. And when people... I guess, balk at the cost of what swimming lessons are because they are quite expensive, that it's a it's a life 
life-saving skill that you need to have, you know, and I'm not dissing ballet or soccer or any other sport, but they're not going to save your life where learning to swim will save your life. Because if you get into a situation where you can't swim, that's life-threatening. So yeah, yeah, I think learning to swim for me was a non-negotiable, but it just continued on a lot more than what a lot of other people would. And I mean, look, I swam when I was young and I was good at it and I went into the swimming squad and all that kind of stuff. But then there was a point where I was like, I can't even really remember, but I obviously didn't want to get up at 5am or whenever it was. Fair enough. My (laughs) mum had to drive me to school. What was that point from, okay, I'm going to swim and I'm good and I'm in the squad to, wow, I'm actually really good at it or someone realising that you were really good at it? Well, typically, especially for females, that dropout age is at 12, 13, 14 age because other priorities come up in our life. So whether it's schooling, we need to focus on that. If we're kind of good but not good enough to make teams, then we kind of drop out because we go, well, I'm spending all this time training. If I'm getting up at 4am to go training, then I kind of want to be the best. And so if you're not not quite making it, that's when we get big dropouts. So that age group is a huge dropout time and not just swimming, but many sports because other things become a bigger priority. Um, Other genders become a big, big issue, you know, whether it's relationships or, um, you know, other things kind of distract us at that point. But for me, I was very lucky in that way to just really love swimming and I love the community and I had so many great friends and I looked forward to getting up and seeing my mates in the morning before I went to school because, I didn't go to the same school as them. So Mm -hmm. to be able to go to the pool and hang out and then go to school and then come back and hang out with my friends again, I just loved that. That just made me so happy. So for me to continue was quite easy. It was just an easy choice. And it's not necessarily that I was the best, but it was a case of I really loved it. And it was a huge part of my life and I couldn't imagine not having it. So giving up wasn't an option for me because I just loved it. And then when you were training, take us through a day, because I know your mother, obviously, as most swimmers, they're young when they start off, they have to be driven by their mums to training and then they've got that big day ahead of them because you're still at school. Tell us about a normal day for you. I think at school age, it probably started at five. It probably wasn't yeah. the 4am really strict time, but probably started at 5am, would drive to training. I think at that point, I probably lived about mm, 20 minutes, half an hour away from yeah. the pool. So I drove there, uh, would do my session. I think when you're about, well, maybe about 13 or so, it's it's probably an hour long session, which is still a long time. That's long. Yeah. And so we'd do an hour. I'd have breakfast in the car, usually something that's transportable. It might be a porridge or something like that, or something you can microwave very quickly. And then eat that on the way to school, be at school from 8.30 or probably eight o'clock until three, finish school, go straight back to the pool, probably swim four till five, 5.30 in the afternoon, and then go home, have dinner, straight to bed, do it again the next day for five days a week, Monday to Friday. And Were you ever like exhausted from doing that? Was there ever a point where you thought this is just full on and was it hard to concentrate on school when you got there? Funny enough, no, not really. (laughs) You just think when you're really young, I know when you're so young, you just have unlimitous amounts of energy. It's just 
it just, I think when I got older, I realized I was like, oh, I'm actually really tired (laughs) doing this now. So I would give anything to have that energy of a teenager again and and be 13, 14, because I don't know, I just never found myself ever really that tired. And it was just a routine and you just got used to it and you'd go to bed fairly early, 8.30, 9 o'clock and then, and then go back and do it again. So it kind of wasn't really an issue because yeah, it was just a routine. Yeah. Well, you'd sleep well and (laughs) a solid sleep. And I think going back to your earlier point, when you love doing something, it doesn't matter how old you get. Like I think of me in this podcast and I just love it and I'm happy to do it on a Sunday or, a you know, it's never too much work to be there at midnight still editing because there's so much love that's in it. So your love for swimming would have overrided probably any feeling of tiredness and your young age. Because you just enjoyed it. Yeah, and I loved every bit of it. I loved the friends that I had in it. I loved the competitions. I loved um, sometimes the training, not so much, but there's always elements that you don't love about work. And so for me, just, yeah, I just, I loved every bit of it. And it was my entire life and my best mates were in swimming and I got to see them all the time. And um, the trips were always incredible. And yeah, it's just, uh, it's exactly like that when you love what you do. It's just nothing is that hard or you're just happy to do it because you just love every bit about it. Yeah. And tell us when you went from doing that to then being selected and going on the Australian team, how was that transition for you? Uh, looking back now, probably more difficult than I thought it would be at that time. So I made my first Olympic team when I was 14. So I hadn't yeah, even turned 15 incredible. yet, which is unbelievable. And I look back now and go, that 14-year-old knew nothing, just had no worldwide experience, had no understanding of self, had no concept of competing against people who are way older than you, like talking about people when you're 14 who are in their late 20s, which was like, oh, my God, they're so, so old. What um, year is that at school, 14? 2000. So I think. But as in, 10, sorry, yeah, year 10. 10. God, that's so young. Yeah. I think it's just crazy to think that this kid in year 10 that was still at high school and not even can't even drive yeah no can't drive can't do anything actually would it be year nine maybe Uh, yeah I was thinking that I mean I finished school when I was 17 but I was young yeah, maybe year yeah, nine or year ten. Year nine or year was. ten. Yeah, yeah. Still so young, just no concept of the world or no worldwide experience, no nothing, and just here competing at the Olympic Games, which was a home Olympics <laughs> in Sydney. Which well, that's just lucky. Blew. That's yeah, that lucky. Was lucky. It would have been then, harder if you were overseas. That could have been a bit daunting. It would have been daunting, but then I think the pressure of having yeah. a home Olympics and that expectation of our Aussies doing so well in our home Olympics probably added a bit to it. But it was like home. I wasn't far away from home. Just being in Sydney and my and my mum being in Brisbane was not that bad. So it kind of had that homely feel to it, but also still completely overwhelming because you could be anywhere in the world at the Olympic Games because it's just like this little bubble that you live in. So you go to the Olympics and you're 14 and I wonder for you, firstly, do you have a minder or something because you are a (laughs) child? So if I was your mum, I don't know that I just want you to be roaming around. Uh, Like I'd want to know that there was someone looking after you. No minder. 
Wow. <laughs> Nothing. No. Hey, and how'd you it know how to do mind. everything? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. That's the thing. I just figured it out as I went along. It's just crazy, isn't it? Because I just yeah. look back and go, if I look at 14-year-olds now, I think, is someone looking after you? Like, are you allowed to be unchaperoned walking around? And I truly was. Like, it just was, I had I had people looking out for me. The senior people on the team would look yes. out for me. But in terms of just winging it, I just truly just winged everything. <laughs> just yeah. was trying to figure out myself and trying to figure out emotions and trying to figure out puberty and all those little things that you try and figure out about yourself. But I was doing it at an Olympic Games on the world stage with everybody watching. I think how many billions of people watch yes. the Olympic Games. It's just bizarre. Did you have another athlete or something like that that you could kind of hang with a little bit or talk to about how you were not feeling? Really. No, not really. So the, um, my roommate, Sibylla Good, she was 18. So that's a fairly big difference between I just turned 15 by this point. So yes. three years of your teenage years is like 10 years yeah. in, in when you're an adult because an 18-year-old has nothing in common with a 15-year-old. It's like, oh, why is this kid hanging on to me? So um, it would just be kind of a strange experience. But um, all the friends that I grew up with and came through the swimming ranks that I would swim with at state titles or any regional area competitions weren't at the Olympic Games yet because I had made it and they were still maturing and and making teams at 18 or 20. So I had to wait another Olympic Games to have my mates on the team um, because, yeah, they were still too young. Did your mum come to Sydney to watch you? Yeah, she came. Yeah, she had um, seats. She was basically in the nosebleed section right up the back. There was no uh, They didn't put her up the front? No, not at all. No, she could hardly see anything. She could see half the pool. I know, it's crazy. So, um, yeah, there's no special tickets for anyone. It's just a a free-for-all, yeah. I would have thought it was like the tennis. You know how the coaches and partners are up the front? It's not like that. Yeah, no, not at all because our team has about – uh, 20 to 30 swimmers on the team. So, or no, probably 30 swimmers on the team. If every swimmer had their two parents or two tickets for a family member, that's a whole lot of tickets. And then you multiply that by all the countries. So the US want their tickets and their parents, but then also the general public get their tickets. So it's not necessarily a case of, um, yeah, you get priority seating or priority tickets. It's pretty much a free-for-all about how you get them. Although in saying that at other Olympic Games we had, it was called the Poos at the time, parents of our Olympic swimmers, and they used to collect tickets and they used to get them on our behalf and then whoever's children were competing on that day they would get priority of this allocation of tickets but other than that it's pretty much you go into a ballot and whatever tickets you get you get. Wow that's so interesting. I wonder going back to what we spoke about you being so young and you really had to grow up very fast way faster than most 15 year olds do and before we got on this this podcast interview, we were talking about multi-coddling children and then allowing them a little bit to be in the wild. When we say the wild, just not you know, doing <laughs> yeah. everything for them. <laughs> and I wonder for you, now looking back at your life, if you feel like that had any pros to it or any negativity to it. 
Oh, probably looking back, I would say there's probably more negativity to it, but yeah. I wouldn't change any of it because yes, I did had to did have to grow up quickly and I probably catapulted through the teenage years of 13, 14, 15 up until I was probably about 19, 20, that I just rocketed straight through and kind of missed big milestones of mm. development, I guess, for a teenager that everyone else would get to experience and, you know, 18 and going to parties and just living a, a life fairly free of anxiety and stress and, and thinking about the future. Whereas I very much by the age of 18 had been to two Olympic games already and mm. had felt like the pressure and the weight of the world on my shoulders to compete and perform and to win. And I kind of missed out on that freedom to explore who I was and mm. what I liked doing and socializing and all of I really missed out on a whole lot of things. Although in saying that I got to travel the world, I got to meet great people. I get to learn social skills that so many people wouldn't get to learn, like networking, um, friends <laughs> all around the world, stuff like that, yeah. that you really don't get exposed to until probably a skill you learn in your late 20s, early 30s when you realise, oh, I actually need this skill. Yeah. And I developed that from the age of 15 when I get thrown into a room of mm. diplomats and uh, political figures and uh, CEOs of big organisations and I have to strike up a conversation with one of the the biggest, strongest, most prominent business person in the world, and you've got to strike up a conversation and find what to say to them. Um, and I what do you that. say to them? <laughs> you just go, "Hi, I'm a swimmer," and <laughs> you know, like you just you just try and find something in common. So, yeah, learning that skill is so hard to do, but I had to learn that so quickly because it's a competitive world out there. And if you don't put your name out there, someone else will. And so this is to yeah. help get sponsors and things like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. All different things. Um, and whether it's just having a conversation with someone, that's yeah. something that I learned. You can just be talking to, um, whether it's a diplomat or, um, for the 2006 Commonwealth Games, we had Condoleezza Rice oh, was yeah, presenting. Yeah, so she was the US Secretary of State at the time. Yeah. And so to have a conversation with someone as as powerful and and worldwide prominence, to have a conversation with them, that's not easy to do. And so to learn that skill is something that I'll have for the rest of my life. Mm. So in that way, there's negatives, but also there's positives that I would not trade for the world. Yes. And I wonder, were your teammates nice and kind to you? You had, in the era of your you swimming, you had people like Grant Hackett and Jeff Hugel and Susie O'Neill. Yeah, man, I was so lucky to have those people. And Jeff Hugel was in my club, so in my squad. So I was exposed to people like that who were kind and caring and looked after me uh, from a very young age. So I'm really lucky to have people like that, um, people like Grant Hackett. So funny enough, every time we flew everywhere, it was always in alphabetical order, the seating arrangement. So I oh. always sat next to Grant Hackett on flights because H and J, there weren't too many people in between there. So I used to always sit next to Hacky on flights. And um, yeah, he was a great mate of mine for very, for many, many years on the team. So we crossed over a lot on our teams when he was just extraordinary and, and winning and 
and doing whatever it is wow. he did. And yeah, so I'm so lucky. And people like Susie O'Neill and I can count them as friends because yeah. we've shared so many experiences together and traveled overseas. And I, I just pinch myself sometimes that I think these people are extraordinary athletes. And I got to experience that, you know, just as my mates. And I saw them most of my life. I just saw them everyday people. And you've spoken openly about the toxic culture at the time. And I wonder how did that start and what about it was so toxic? It's kind of hard to put your finger on it. And it's, I guess now when I've worked in corporate situations, when you hear people talk about toxic cultures, it's kind of really hard to put your finger on where it actually started mm. and what it actually started happening. It usually stems from one person and then it one flows person. down. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's been my, my <laughs> from working in corporate for <laughs> nearly my whole life, you yeah. see that there's usually someone that it begins with and then it kind of seeps down from there. Yeah, and I guess people allow that kind of behaviour to continue. They don't stamp it out at the time. And so I think this was probably a collective where the generations were changing. So people like myself were coming towards the end of their career. People like Grant Hackett had retired, Ian Thorpe had retired, people like Susie O'Neill, people who had come through that era where we had to work so hard and we had to fight our way onto the team Mm. and we had to do, we had to have certain, I guess, characteristics is the best word I can use for that, that were, we cared for our teammates and we looked out for everyone. And like I said, I was 14 on my first team. I had people like Susie O'Neill who were caring about me Mm. as a youngster and showing me the ropes and, and demonstrating how things were done. And then someone like me, who's then 27 on their last team in London, the generation had changed and I didn't really keep up with that. So I was trying to guide and help young athletes coming through that were like, we don't care. You, We do it differently to you. Like it's just not that way anymore. And I've also got to keep in mind too that social media was a big thing that changed throughout this mm. time. So from probably about 2008, I think the first iPhone was coming out because I remember we were in China and they had fake ones at the markets, <laughs> the iPhones, which was quite funny. Um, but they the social media was changing everything. It was changing the landscape of how we interacted and we didn't have that in 2004 or the year 2000. Facebook didn't exist. None of that was around and the landscape was changing and I just didn't really keep up with it. It was so hard to be a part of a generation that was completely different. Although I was not older, I I wasn't that much older I was, as a generation, I was yes. older because I, I sort of belonged in that that year 2000, 2004 era of swimming and it felt like I was being pushed out of that generation, if that makes sense. It's kind of, yeah, I wasn't typically old, yeah. but I felt old. What do you think it was about the way that the generation below you, their way of being that was that was toxic or different to how you'd been? I think it was more about individuals rather than a team. And yeah. I certainly felt around 2000, 2004, the team 
culture and environment was very much focused on you be the best version of yourself for the benefit of the team and always looking out for your fellow athletes or what they're going through or having an understanding or it's, it's so many different things. It's like a myriad of different attitudes and beliefs that we had back in 2000 that I didn't necessarily see in 2012. It was very much the individual versus an individual Mm. on the team and very competitive for endorsements and sponsorships. And yeah, it it felt very individualistic. Whereas we still had the element of individualistic in 2000. Of course, you have to be the best athlete. We're an individual sport, but I just found the collective culture was more team oriented earlier and it became less about that in 2012. Do you think that comes from the coaches or how does that begin? I think it runs away from them. They sort of try and catch up to what's happening and maybe fix a problem after it's started festering. So when it's, it's hard to explain and I'm not going to blame anyone because I was part of it as well. Yeah. But I think it gets away from you and you don't realize what's happening at the time. And then you look back and go, hang on, this was all happening. Like Mm. the social media stuff was coming in and the generations were really changing. And it wasn't until we looked back and went, oh, we could have done that better. When at the time, no one was to blame because we were all part of it. and We all contributed in our various ways. So yeah, I think it was really hard to put blame on any particular Mm. person because we were all contributing. You mentioned social media and that I've talked about that at length on many of my podcast episodes with different people in in completely different jobs and specialties. And it, it can be so great in some areas and then completely not great in <laughs> others. We've just come off the Commonwealth Games and all that stuff with Kyle Chalmers. And I wonder, what is your opinion being a swimmer, having been a swimmer and being to Commonwealth Games, Olympic Games, you've done it all. How do you feel for him and what was going on? Oh, my heart just breaks for that situation. And I'm so glad that my career really finished when social media and Instagram was starting to take off because there is no way that I would cope with doing sport and social media and having to do all of that on the side. And I see how popular they are and how many followers they've got and they're always posting pictures. And I'm just so grateful that we didn't have to do that. You know, we would just go to the pool, go train, sit in the sun for a while. We didn't have to pose on the side and go, oh, this sponsor or this sponsor. It was just, we could just get on with the job and just get it done with very limited distractions. We could do basically what we wanted. We didn't have to post everything. There was no expectation. And I kind of like too that we had a bit of secrecy. Mm. Like I really love that when we competed at the Olympic Games, people hardly heard from us. Like for four years we were kind of in the background and then people would do um, school articles, you know, school assignments on us or learn about their athletes. Whereas now they're so out there all the time, every day, and they're expected to post everything and everyone knows every minute detail about their life. Whereas I feel like we had 
quite a lot of secrecy. Mm. And I think that was so beneficial for someone like me who's reasonably private. I, I don't really like posting everything that's happening in my life. So for someone like me who's reasonably on the border of introverted and extroverted and doesn't share every single thing and element of my life. I think that's perfect for me that social media wasn't around. So I just think that's so challenging for them to the interest in their private lives and who they're with and and what's happening for them. Uh, We just didn't have to deal with that unless we wanted to share it. Yeah. The media, again, like social media, and, and this has gone on for many years, is can be such a wonderful thing, but it can be so unbelievably toxic as well. And we see that stuff with Kyle and how that affected him. And, and this has always really upset me as well that the media, especially now, has turned into such salacious headlines and we're more interested in this guy's personal life than we are in what we know him for, which is swimming and who cares about his personal life. And it's everything, which is the opposite of my podcast, where it's just such a transactional kind of on the surface level of someone's life that we shouldn't even be privy to. And I wonder for you who also had their battles with the media, there was a point when at 27, you were called fat by the media, which is just, I mean, firstly, just such a ridiculously awful thing for for it to even be allowed to be published. I mean, that just blows my mind that any person, A, would write that, but B, would then go to the editor and the editor say, oh, yes, that's okay, publish that. That shouldn't be allowed if you were 70 or 50, let alone if you're 27 or any age. How did that affect you and the media in general during your career? Yeah, it hugely affected me. And that was a big part of my mental health journey. So I had the year before had a huge amount of mental health issues, was considering taking my life. Like I was just just desperate at this point, just at so low. I've never been that low before ever again and just needing so much psychological help. And I went on antidepressants, which made me put on weight. And and that was the situation I was in. So to have someone comment on my personal appearance and uh, things that have absolutely nothing to do with my performance at that time, for sure, criticise my performance, not a problem. And if I didn't step up to expectations, but I was at my fourth Olympic Games, I had this mental health uh, trial before the year before and just trying to get through that. But no one asked those questions and no one even bothered to go back and and say what was actually happening. But I think watching this situation with Kyle and what I appreciate so much about him, and I wish I had an element of this when I went through it, was he is so brave to stand up and say, please stop. Like that's enough now. And and to say that this is distracting and hurtful and to say, I'm not going to continue if you continue to write headlines like this. I love that he said that because I would have given anything to have a voice like that mm. back then. And and I think this is the good side of social media. I think this is where um, Instagram's so fantastic because he can then put up a post and say, I won't tolerate this and I don't appreciate this. And for my mental health, you need to stop. So 
when I was competing social media, we didn't have that Instagram platform where we could instantly say, I'm warning you right now, if you don't stop, this is going to happen. So when I was competing, it was all very filtered through media. We only had small opportunities to talk to press when it was after a competition or after a swim that I didn't have that chance. And to be honest, it's too distracting. So I just had to move past it, suck it up, get on with the job, try and forget about it as much as possible and just squash it and say, I'm not talking about this right now. I've got a job to do. Um, And then I just had to process it on my own when I got home. But in saying that social media, that's the great side about it because I, I could have made a huge statement and said, this is disgraceful journalism. This is not what we tolerate. This is hurtful, not only to women, but to men, to girls, to boys, to adults. It doesn't matter who you're affecting. You can't really be saying or putting headlines out there that about appearance because it's got nothing to do with that. So whether I would have done that, I don't know with Instagram, if I would have posted about it or whether I would have just forgotten about it, but it would have been so nice to have that voice and that platform to say how I really felt at that time. Um, And looking back, maybe I probably would have done something like Kyle just to put out a a big warning to say, you've got to stop, stop Mm. with the headlines. It's enough. I wonder for you, how do you heal after that? takes a lot of therapy, yeah. <laughs> a lot of work. Yeah. And, and even today I'm still unraveling a whole heap of emotional turmoil through that time about belief. And um, yeah, I think for a long time, I was really angry about it and sort of thought about, you know, how dare you? And then you've got to get down underneath all the other layers that taught you that feeling of being, uh, personally attacked about appearance and um, and body weight and body image and I had never had to deal with that before yeah. and it, it well now it's a massive massive thing that we're talking about which is great but when it first happened to me I had no idea how to deal with that so yeah if now still sitting in therapy mm. and talking about it and and unraveling all those issues and not realizing at the time how much of an impact that had on me. So many sessions. (laughs) I think that would have a massive impact on anyone. I mean, A, to be called that when you're so young and then in the biggest newspapers in Australia is just horrible. And I, I wonder like, did you suffer disordered eating or anything like that from? No, that? not really. No, because I was always really health conscious. So um, I think to be an athlete, there's probably elements of, um, I'm not going to say it's not an eating disorder, probably a style of disordered eating in a yeah. way that we're very particular about what we eat, how much we eat. Um, you have to be big, to an extent. You have to be. Yeah. Like it's not, it's non-negotiable because yeah. if you just let yourself eat everything and pizzas. <laughs> it's not going to work. It's not going to yeah. work. You can't be an elite athlete. So in some sense, I guess it would be borderline disordered eating because you are so fanatical about everything you consume. So in a classification, it would be on the scale of disordered because you're so particular about it. So in saying that, I definitely, definitely didn't have an eating disorder, but just was very fanatical about um, 
what I ate. But since that picture, then I became really uh, conscious of what I looked like. So before my body was always a vessel that performed, that competed, that always did a great job for me. It always worked well. It was very rarely injured. And I did not care what it looked like until after that 2012 picture came out that I really started to become conscious of what it looked like, that it was not looking like an elite athlete or how I looked in 2008 because I was a different person. Mm. I was a different athlete from 2008. I was four years older. I'd had all my mental health issues. And so to compare those two people, they're two very different people. So it's not fair to make that that comparison? Absolutely. You mentioned uh, your mental health issues the year prior and and that you were suicidal. What brought that on? That was very much wrapped in identity. So that was a big thing for me was my whole identity, my self-worth, everything that I believed in was wrapped in swimming. And once I achieved the gold medal that I so desperately wanted throughout my whole career, Once I had that, I really questioned, well, who am I without swimming? And Mm. I was ready to retire. I wanted to move on, but I couldn't because I had nothing else. I didn't have a life outside of swimming. I hadn't studied anything. I didn't know what I liked doing every day. So once a question was asked to me, it was like, well, if you don't swim, what are you going to do? When I didn't have an answer, I thought, Mm. I don't know. Like, I don't know what to do. I don't. I don't really want to train anymore. I've achieved everything I wanted. What am I supposed to do now? Like what do normal people do? And when I didn't have an answer for what I even liked doing, I just got stuck in this loop of, well, I need to keep swimming because I have nothing else. What else am I going to do? I couldn't even contemplate retiring because there was nothingness. Um, I couldn't work a job because I had no well, no work experience. Yeah. I do have transferable skills, but no work experience. I didn't know what to do with myself every day of getting up and not doing any training. So yeah, that identity was wrapped up. And so I continued swimming and I wanted to be the first of four Olympic games for an Australian athlete, Australian swimmer, sorry, that that's what I was striving for. But it just, my heart wasn't really into that. I just didn't mm. really care. So yeah, that's where mental health really started to spiral because every day I would go training and go, I just don't really want to be here. It's yeah. not for me anymore. This doesn't light me up anymore. So yeah, that that struggle really started to happen for, and everything started to unravel. And that's when it that's when it hit its peak where I was like, I can't deal with this anymore. I'm not myself. I don't feel good. And it was just, I thought, well, there were no other options for me. There was no work or study or anything like that, that I just didn't see a way out of it. And so you've spoken about how at that time you were very close to taking your own life and Mm. that you had this beautiful coach who almost was like your guardian angel that came to knock on your door at a a time Mm. that, that you really needed him. Yeah, it was just incredible. And it's one of those sliding door moments that you can't believe that the time, the timing of how he came and knocked on my door at that time. And he knew that I was struggling, but probably not to the extent that I was really feeling because I just didn't let anyone see that side. Um, And so for him to knock on the door when I was just at my lowest point and I just thought, I just want out of here. 
away from all of this and I need to make this go away right now is I've, I've just had enough. And for him to knock on the door and I was just bawling my eyes out, I was just... Mm. I just burst into tears and he just gave me the biggest hug and he was like, we need to get you out of here and then just started the process right then and there. It's one of those things where you're like, I have no idea who sent you or I have no idea how you knew to knock on the door at that time, but you did. And that was a pivotal moment in my healing where that that's almost like where you pinpoint that that's the lowest point in my entire life was right there in that instant that two seconds just before he knocked on the door was the lowest point of my entire Mm. life and it's almost like when he opened the door like just putting a hand out and then just taking that hand and then going on the journey upwards Mm. it's it's just so amazing to feel to look back at that time and go I can actually pinpoint to a two-second frame in my life that was my lowest and his hand was the one that pulled me out. That changed your life forever. And, and honestly, if you reflect on that now, I mean, do you think that there must be something more to life than, than what sure. we can see? Exactly. I agree with you. It's just, I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm not religious by any means. I, I'm definitely not, I grew up Catholic, but not re, I'm not really yeah. religious, but definitely spiritual. I think there's something out there that there's a journey set for us somehow that people are sent in particular ways that it's not your time to go yet yeah. and I'm going to send this person in to oh, it's not, me rescue or, yeah. <laughs> not rescue or save you or anything but that we just need to change this trajectory somehow. So, yeah, I think I for sure I think there's something, a higher power out there, whether it's Mother Nature or something, mm. but energetically I just I think vibrationally people can sense. When when people are connected, I think there's a vibration that Absolutely. exists between them and he probably felt that that vibration was quite off and, yeah, came in at that point. Knowing that now, I wonder after that experience, sometimes, like you said, it was your lowest point and then the trajectory changed and you began to slowly rise again. And I wonder if you then looked at life in a more fulfilled way, knowing that things don't just happen and we're here and then we die and that's it and and that Mm. life has more meaning than that. Yeah, definitely. And I think that moment for sure changed my opinion on all of that, that I started to realise that there's so much more to life than just swimming or Mm. the job that you do or how you see yourself. So I think I'm in that situation, that wake up call was what exactly what I needed at that point, that there is so much more to life and to who we are as people and the impact we can have on others can be so beneficial. And almost in that moment, I think too, I snapped out of a very selfish view Mm. of the world that it was all about me and everyone cared about what I was doing and everyone cared that I was winning. No, they don't. They really don't. They everyone has their own stuff that they're after and doing and their own concerns and their family issues and everyone's trying to achieve different things. No one cares about what I'm doing. You know, I'm just, I'm just swimming. That's all it is. Mm. And that simplicity, I think was a great wake up call that it just took all the pressure and the weight off that really no one cares. I'm not, I'm really not changing the world. I'm not curing cancer. I'm not, 
I'm just entertainment. That's all it is. Mm. And this is a selfish pursuit for me to want to achieve things which are gold medals and really, in the big scheme of things, it really means nothing. We're here for a short period of time. We may as well make the most of it. So I'm really grateful in that way that that situation did happen to me. It was awful at the time, but it was such a nice little wake-up call to go, get over yourself. You're not that amazing. (laughs) Just, you know, there's so much more to life. I read that you said that when you won, I know you won gold on numerous occasions, but you said that it wasn't the feeling that you thought it would be. And I find that really interesting because it reminded me of when I was watching the Amy Winehouse documentary and when she won best Grammy for like best song or artist or something like that. And it was just, this is the creme de la creme of what my work is about and I feel nothing. Yeah. I mean, how did that come to be like that? It's just so underwhelming. It's such a, because I think the issue is we have these so many expectations of what it's going to feel like. And we we think we're going to feel fulfilled when this happens or when I get married, I'll feel like this. When I have finally have children, I'll feel like this. And when I get that house in that suburb, I'll feel like this. And when it doesn't live up to that expectation, we feel so disappointed because we go, Mm. ah, that doesn't feel anything like what, what I thought it was going to feel like. And I thought I was going to like myself more. I thought other people would like me more if I won a gold medal. When none of that's true, it just means that you've just got an extra piece of silverware that sits in the (laughs) cupboard and you never look at it again, um, which is what I do. And it's just funny that we we all do it. In life, we do it every time. It's like once I get that degree, then I'll be able to get that job, then I'll enjoy it, mm. then I'll like it. But then the goalposts just change. Yeah. They just change. And it's and that whole idea about enjoy the journey. It's not all about the destination. Absolutely. It, and it, that is so true because the destination never feels like what you think it's going yeah. to feel like. It's never as fulfilling as you think. You, It's not like all of a sudden you get to the goalpost and they fill up your cup and there you go, there you go, you're fulfilled. Like, there you go, you, you feel amazing and your self-worth is amazing and and you're just going to be adored everywhere you go. It's nothing like that. And and most of that stuff you, you turf in the bin because that's not what you do it for. You do it for mm. your own self gratification and it's not what it's about. There's so much more to doing that. And now looking back on my career, I I treasured my friendships that I have and the mm. memories and the memories that I have so vividly are mucking around with my mates in the village and stealing all the Snickers bars that, you know, just <laughs> as a joke and filming videos and and the laughing and and the inside jokes that we had. I remember those so vividly, but winning an Olympic gold medal, I don't remember any of it. Wow. So, yeah, so for something that's so pivotal in my life, mm. they're not the moments I remember the most. It's an important message to hear and I wonder... You know, I feel like your career was so amazing, but there were these points that were just not amazing. And one that is you is well known for your life, which is the point where Dawn Fraser called you a spoilt brat. To tell the story is that you were on the podium and I did you you had bronze, you had won bronze, and yep. she thought that you were pulling a sour face, right? And you can tell the reason behind that. But what I wonder for her is say there wasn't the reason that you will tell us, when is it still okay? And how does she know that you didn't have a sore stomach? 
Or, you know what I mean? How can you I really analyze, need the bathroom? <laughs> like exactly someone's face when they're standing on a podium, even feel that it's okay to say that. And her knowing that again, that she's in a, she's a ex-Olympic athlete. And I don't know, it just all seems very bizarre. Yeah, I'm really conscious of all that sort of stuff now, especially now that I work in media. And even just about a month ago, something I said was completely taken out of context. So I do understand that things can be headline grabbing and they can take bits and pieces and use that as a headline and whether that's the situation. But if you do use those words and spoiled brat together, does not sum up my background whatsoever and no understanding of of how hard I've worked to do things. And I guess the issue is a lot of people make judgments on a, on a two-second moment in time where I have a terrible resting bitch face at the best of times. Like it's just shocking. And I wear every emotion on my face. Everyone can tell exactly what I'm feeling just by my facial expressions. I get it all the time, even at work. It's like, what are you smirking at? I was like, oh, I didn't even know I was smirking. But in terms of that, it's so hard because people make huge assumptions about facial expressions, which are sometimes just not true. Like I can look like the grumpiest person waiting for my coffee when in fact I'm just going, oh, do I want the vanilla slice or do I want the the cherry ripe slice, you know? Like big decisions in my head um, makes it look like that I'm so grumpy. But it's, we make assumptions all the time and based off people's facial expressions and we actually have no idea what's going on for that person. We're all guilty of it. I'm sure I've done it a million times, judging off headlines or what I see on the news and a, and a two-second snippet. But to make a judgment based off that and, and to publicly criticise, I think goes a step too far because that's when you start being judgmental and it says so much more about just learning about judgment and different learning since my swimming career, just a a lot of judgment usually can just turn towards yourself because that just comes from just a reflection. I'm just purely a mirror to what you're feeling. I'm, I'm just reflecting back to you what you feel about yourself. So as much as I don't take it personally, it's still quite hurtful at the time. Yeah. And what was happening for you at that time when you were on the podium? Well, I was only 18. So I had just been to my first Olympics in 2000. This was my second one. I'd put so much pressure on myself to win. Um, I'd had coaches that I was working with, like, no one can beat you. Like every day, and I'm not joking, no one can beat you. No one is possible at beating you in this event. You are just the fastest. You're the best. No one could ever touch you. You're just so much better than everyone else. And when, um, I think Brooke Hansen had beat me in that one and a Chinese swimmer as well. It was so shocking because I was like, hang on, you told me that I was the best in the world and no one was anywhere near me. And I put on my all the pressure on that I'd won silver, so I should win gold. And, um, you know, what does that mean about me? And going back to all that self-worth yeah. stuff and, and all of that identity things, um, you know, I'm worthless if I don't win. So it's on a surface level of picture there is... <laughs> I don't know, a hundred million different cognitive processes that are happening in that one fraction of time of mm. of self-belief and self-worth and a whole heap of other things. And what also I think people don't realise is you were the breadwinner for you and your mother and there was it was mm. a big deal 
for you to try and win gold because the money that you get from winning a gold medal compared to a bronze and the sponsorships that come in after that are huge. And not many people who are doing this sort of career have that responsibility on their shoulders as well. And your gorgeous mum was the one that devoted her life to driving you to training at the crack of dawn and (laughs) making sure that everything was okay with you. And so you were this little team working together that's a big responsibility. Yeah, it's huge. And especially for an 18-year-old. I don't know how many 18-year-olds are out there on the world stage trying to win and compete in something that you have no control over. You have no control over how other people compete and how they go about their process and they've got their own stuff going on that have to feel like winning is the only option because silver is not going to pay enough money. And especially with sponsorships, people desperately want to sponsor an Olympic gold medalist and Olympic silver just doesn't have the same ring to it. So having that pressure and that expectation on beforehand just adds a whole nother layer of pressure and intensity and every other belief system that was going on at that time. So yeah, it was pretty challenging to be the main breadwinner and then to have so many dependence on my performance such as money and sponsorship and everything else that goes with it. Uh, It just adds another layer of complexity to something that's already so challenging. And I wonder, Lisa, you then obviously finished your career doing swimming and you've gone on to, to do a lot of media and other bits and pieces, but how is life for you now? It's really good at the moment. So I'm studying psychology. So you probably hear some of the things that I'm saying is probably I'm so heavy into it at the moment. Um, so life is good and it's it's still challenging and still working through all the belief systems mm. that I've got from my swimming career. And um, I, I guess one of the more difficult things about once you're a retired athlete is when you're the best in the world at something, it's very hard to go to work when you're not the best in the world yeah. at what you do anymore. You kind of have to settle for mediocre sometimes and be completely okay with it because majority of the things I do, I'm very mediocre. I don't have the skills. I'm not the best in the world and I'm learning everything for the first time. So I do, I struggle with that a lot. Um, one, I had a very... Uh, I guess, difficult last semester and I only got a just a pass in one of my subjects, which is really important. You've got to get fives and above, which is a distinction and above to get into an honours degree. And, oh, the criticism of myself, you know, just a mm, oh, terrible yeah. person and I just want to be the best and I want to get high distinctions and I want to achieve all those things. But then you sort of think, hang on, you can't be the best at everything. You've got to be just have a bit of a realistic view on the world. So I'm hugely critical and I'm always striving to be the best. Um, But sometimes I just have to settle for just being, just a pass is good. (laughs) Absolutely. It's amazing that you're studying psychology. I wonder, is there any other things that you do day to day for your mental health? Always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always working on mental health. Just um, Even just before this, I had an appointment with my psychologist. So I'm always working on different aspects of mental health, um, medication when it, when I need it. It's not at this point, but um, yeah, just always meditation mm. or medication or um, yeah, sometimes just working through and unwinding all the 
things that have happened to me throughout my swimming career and and also sometimes dipping back into those moments of power and when I felt so good and strong within myself and just everything that I believe about my body and that it's always working for me and yes, yeah, it's, it's little things. Yeah, little things like that that I'm like, oh, that's right. Like I learned that skill and I'll use it in my everyday and and just learning new things and testing myself. And yeah, I'm just, I'm really grateful that I had the experience I had when I was swimming and the skills that I learned there because I, I do use it in everyday life now. Obviously, exercise is such an important part of anyone's life. Like you don't need to be an Olympic athlete to know that you need to move your body. What have you learned about the pros to exercise during your life? Yeah, it's pivotal. It just makes such a huge difference. And funny enough, last semester, I had a very stressful semester. I had three subjects. I was really struggling with them just to get my head around it. And weirdly enough, my friend at uni, who's also studying psychology, she said, man, you've just got to exercise. And you're like, you know what? I haven't been doing that. And seriously, she goes, it's so simple. And she goes, you forget about it sometimes. She goes, but you've just got to go to the gym. And I was like, you are so right. And so I signed back up to to the gym and my mental health has improved massively. Mm. Like it's just, it's so simple. And you think, of course, you know, like, why did I need you to tell me that to go back to the gym and and all the excuses pop up? You go, I don't have time or I'm so tired or all of that sort of stuff. But now I look at it as, as a bit of a self-care thing, you know, yes. like do this for you, like this is your time and, and book it in and make it a non-negotiable and that just makes a huge difference. Absolutely. It's funny that she's telling an ex-Olympian athlete that you should go and <laughs> go to the go gym. To the gym. But <laughs> it, it, what you're saying is so true because if I'm ever feeling a bit down in the dumps and I go into a good PT session and love being with my trainer and doing some weights and things like that, or even if I'm, I go for a walk with a friend and just moving our bodies, that cathartic movement and chatting. And it's just the endorphins that are being pumped. I mean, it is such an underrated thing for mental health and something that I think we all need to put into our lives. And do something you enjoy. That's the big thing. Yeah. I think so many people go to the gym because, oh, that's what you're supposed to do. And, oh, it's going to make me feel better. And, oh, you know, I'm going to lose weight. No, go because you love it. Like I yes. go for the social yes. aspect mainly and I go for the coffee afterwards. But it's more just move your body in a way that feels good. Like if you love yoga, do it. Like yeah. if you like going to the gym, great. If CrossFit's your thing, fantastic. But Choose what feels good for you and it doesn't have to be a chore. Like I love tennis. Tennis is one of my favourite things. But, yeah, just move in a way that feels good. That's a huge workout for me. But so many people think, oh, but, you know, I've got to, you know, go hard and get through it. No, you don't. No, you don't. Just enjoy. Yeah, that's so true because for years I used to run. I haven't run for about Mm. seven years now and I never really liked it. But I thought, no, it's good. It's good for your body to run. (laughs) There was this one point where I just stopped and I thought, this is not fun. I hate this. (laughs) And that was just me because people love running. But then I went and started boxing and doing personal training and I fell in love with doing those things. And it changed my whole, like, the week where I do those things, I am so excited for it. So I think your point about choosing yoga or uh, any form of sport or movement that you enjoy, well, it just is, it 
it really makes you want to then get up and go and do it. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a chore. It can be really fun. (laughs) It can be really enjoyable. Absolutely. Lisa, what is the best advice that you have ever been given? One of the quotes that I used to live a lot by was successful people do what unsuccessful people don't want to do. Yeah. And I think that was probably one of my key quotes that I use throughout my entire life because sometimes there are things that you don't want to do, but it's about doing them because not everything's amazing. Not everything's traveling the world and winning gold medals. Sometimes it's awful and sometimes it's hard. And yeah. it's sometimes doing those little things behind the scenes, which are not glamorous. They're not fun, but you do them anyway, because it gets you one step closer to where you want to be. And I think that's the big key for a lot of things that I've done. And even with my study, I probably hate it a majority of the time, but it's about doing those things and getting the marks and doing the extra study to be successful in what you want to do. So I live by that most of the time and I still do now. Um, And success looks like different things. So success doesn't have to be the best or a gold medal or um, undeniably the best in the world. Sometimes it's purely just a case of success today looks like I got out of bed and brushed my teeth. Yeah. That's success. You know, it's it's just a scale of different things of what success looks like today, mm. not, not comparing to anybody else. That's so important. And I wonder, do you have a favourite prayer or saying, and I was even thinking when asking you this question, if there was anything before a race that you would, I don't know, I would totally be saying a prayer um, (laughs) every time before I got on the blocks. I wondered if you, if you A, did anything like that or B, have something that you say to yourself now. My mantra before I swam was, this is my office, I know what to do. Because my office was uh, 50 meters long, two meters wide, filled with water. And so I kind of, I love that analogy and and Stefan Vidmar gave me that one. And it was about really stepping into your power and step, oh, actually, I think Rowan told me that one. I can't remember anyway, but where I got it from, but it was just about stepping into your power, into your element and almost like that businesswoman. It's like, yeah, step into my office because this is where I control what I do. This is my place and my office, like step into my area of expertise. And that's what gave me the confidence to be, this is all I can control. Like I literally have no control over what anyone else does. And that just put it back into this is my area and this is what I'm going to control today because everything else is out of my hands really. And it just, it gets rid of all of the worry and concern about things that have nothing to do with you because how well, how someone else performs, it's none of my business. That's, that's up to them. But if I can block all that out and just focus a hundred percent on everything in my control, then everything else is easy. That's so beautiful. Lisa, what is the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? Great question. Um, Probably self-worth has been the biggest, Mm. how to love yourself without everything else. Just Mm. really taking away how much money you have, the house you live in, the car you drive, the education you have, the gold medals you earn, the everything else, which means absolutely nothing if you take all of that away, loving what is and loving what's here now and 
just really, I think, appreciating just who you are without the stuff Mm. is a big lesson. And it's taken me a long time to learn all of that because I've just been taught that performances are everything and gold medals are everything and your self-worth is based on that and people will pay you more money based on how many more things you have when actually it's less, like less is more. So it's really loving what is and and that self-worth without everything. It's a hard one and it's one I talk to a lot of people about because we are wrapped up in our titles and our job and especially it's it's funny because I think the more success you have, the more you associate yourself with a certain thing. So mm-hmm. that success can actually be a negative in some ways. So you doing that work, that internal work, I mean, that is, I think that's just so fundamental in making your life great. Mm, and I love that saying that says when at your funeral, no one will say how nice your couch was, but they will <laughs> say how you made them feel. Yeah. And I think that's so true because no one cares. When you die, no one will even mention what car you drove. Like they yes. won't care, but they will say, gee, that person made me feel good or oh, they made me laugh or yeah, they just always had time for me. That's That stuff's priceless. Absolutely. What is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness is filled with that stuff, those priceless things, friends, family, sharing good times, the laughter. I think that's the big thing. A life of greatness is filled with laughter and conversation and deep conversation and, yeah, it's filled with great people, I think, is what a life of greatness is because, yeah, gold medals, you can, they're they're irreplaceable but those conversations and those connections are far more irreplaceable Mm. than anything on earth. So I think a a life of greatness is definitely full of of friends, family and laughter. Liesl Jones, thank you for the conversation today. You are full of deep wisdom (laughs) and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Amazing. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind the scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free.